So this last week, I had to do something for the first time, and it felt super uncomfortable and weird, and I got to tell you about it. I had to plead guilty. Don't, don't get too concerned. I didn't commit any big crime, but I failed to stop at a stop sign. Yep, everybody, get, get collective, ooh, I know. I know. I was, it was actually about six weeks ago. I was uh, um, driving back from, actually, I did chapel at Eastside Lutheran School, and I was coming back Wednesday morning, nice and quiet, and I'm just driving through one of the neighborhoods over here on my way back, and, and I got to thinking, I'm like, man, I wonder, I think somebody from church just moved in on this block, and I'm thinking about what house it was, you know, looking around, and you're looking at the houses, I look at the intersection, don't see anybody there, you know, and I just drive through. Apparently, I was looking around enough but not enough to see the stop sign, get pulled over, police officer, sir, do you know what you did wrong? I had no idea. I totally missed it. So I got my ticket. It's the first ticket I've ever had. Um, I, I got pulled over once in college, got a, got a, got a warning, um, and, uh, and I got a fix-it ticket in high school due to my dad, because that was his car, not my, it's not my fault. Um, uh, but uh, so anyway, this last week is the time when you gotta, you have to, like, you have to enter a plea and I was like, oh my goodness, I have to plead guilty to a crime. Oh, this feels terrible. And I, so I did plead, you know, plead guilty. And, and then the, the police officer, she had told me, she said, when, you know, when this happens, like, you, sh- you should enter a statement. Because like, you never know, they might, might you know, bring it down. So I wrote my statement. And, and I wrote in there, like, I, I blew the stop sign. I explained what happened. I, didn't, I will accept whatever you, whatever you, uh, you know, say. And uh, the judge thanked me for my kind statement. But the answer is, you still ran the stop sign, <laughs> and you still get the fine. Especially, I think it was by a park over here, so it's a zero tolerance policy on it. So that's a pretty clear judge. It was an easy judgment. Even you know, I was, uh, you know, whatever. Like I, I wasn't trying to whatever, but it is what it is. That's the law. I broke it. Ran the stop sign. Had to plead guilty. Here's the fine. It is what it is. Some judgments like that are very clear. And sometimes in our, our spiritual life, the judgments are very clear. Like, there are parts of God's word that are very, very clear. Like, this is right, this is wrong. Jesus is the only way to be right with God. All other names don't get you there. Jesus is the only way. There's some things that are very clear. But there's other things and other times in our walks of faith where sometimes it gets really complicated to judge whether things are going the right direction or the wrong direction, whether we're taking the right step or the wrong step. And it's hard to think about that when it comes to our own hearts, but actually sometimes it gets even more complicated than when we're thinking about the hearts of others. Where, where are we at? How are things going? Where are people's hearts? This can be a very difficult, complicated thing, judging us. As you think about judging us and, and judging our hearts, we're in this topic today because we're in this Advent series, The End is Near. And we're thinking about that, the end, the goal of it all, that we're looking forward to Jesus returning, coming again to set all things right. He's going to bring justice. He's going to come and judge the world. But as we prepare for that, part of preparing for that is judging our hearts now and where we're at now and, and how we relate with our fellow Christians. It's this tough thing to do. But today, while we get into this lesson that is challenging when we think about preparing in this way, when we think about preparing by, by judging our, our, our hearts, there are some beautiful truths and some really encouraging insights for how we not only relate with, with each other, but really, first and foremost, how God has chosen to relate with us and to choose us. 
We're going to get into all that when we today talk about judging us. The lesson we have is Romans chapter 14, verse 23, and then goes into chapter 15, verse 1. It says, But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now this lasts over the course of the spring to the summer to the earlier part of the fall. We went through this long sanctification series, right, where we talked about living our lives of faith. We had several lessons from the book of Romans. So some of the background here is familiar, but it's really important for us each time to really have it clear in our minds what's going on in the story of Romans, in the letter of Romans, because that really helps us see these smaller sections like our lesson for what they are and what Paul is, is really saying. So let's that, work through a bit again. What is this letter all about? So this is a letter that the Apostle Paul, this man that God had called to, to start churches and to pastor many churches, this letter that Paul wrote to these Christians in the city of Rome, and this letter is the fullest explanation of the gospel that we have. He goes in deep to the gospel message. And we, we have some, some indications, maybe why. We don't have any in, uh, indication that there were any apostles who taught them directly uh, at this point. So it seems like maybe he's giving them the benefit of that extra teaching. But also, he's really working to unify the church. Because the, ch- the church in Rome, like most of the early church, had people coming from two distinct backgrounds. You have people who come from that Jewish background, People who were part of the, who are descendants of the nation of Israel, who grew up with the Old Testament laws, with the Ten Commandments, these laws that were there in place to really set apart God's people, to point ahead to the Savior, to prepare them for the coming Savior. You have many people who come from that background, but then you have people who come from a non-Jewish background, also known as the Gentile background, people who didn't have the Ten Commandments, people who grew up with different religious Uh, views and believing in different gods and there was a lot of tension between them partly because in the old testament the nations the gentiles and god's people were often at odds and god often worked through the gentiles to bring justice against god's people the 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 gentiles often were were barriers to god's kingdom advancing there's all this baggage between the two and now in the new testament they're part of the same church So there's a lot of challenges. How do you interact when you come from such different perspectives? And the amazing thing about the gospel is the better we understand our situation with God and how God interacts with us, it then transforms the way we interact with each other. And the better we understand how God has united us with him, the more we can be united with each other. And so Paul, he really goes through and he lays out this gospel message. He talks about how whether you come from a Jewish background and you know the Old Testament laws, or whether you are a Gentile, whether you never heard the Ten Commandments, we're all in the same situation because we're all trapped under sin. And sin is what? Missing the mark of what God meant for us to be. If you were Jewish in background, you got the Ten Commandments that show you how you missed the mark. Even if you don't have the Ten Commandments, you know there are things you do that are not what you are supposed to do. We're all trapped under sin. And none of us, by trying to follow the laws of the Torah, and the Torah would be the, the, the Hebrew word for the law, None of us can get ourselves right with God and get ourselves the way we were meant to be. Ultimately, like sometimes we can do okay, but the law is ultimately going to show ways that we fall short. So we're all stuck in this problem. And it doesn't matter what your background is, but God has rescued the world through Jesus. 
Jesus is God himself, God the Son, who became also fully human to be everything we were meant to be, to live the life we were meant to live. He then laid it down on a cross and died the death we fully deserve to die as justice for all of the wrong deeds we've done. He paid, paid the debt, paid, my, paid the fine. I'm just thinking again about my ticket. Paying the fine for the wrongs that we've done and then rose so that his perfect life could be ours. We're all simply right with God through faith in Jesus. And so now we are united with God, but also united as a one multi-ethnic family where you can come from whatever background, doesn't matter. Your starting point was the same problem. We have the same solution. Through faith in Jesus, we are right with God. And as we are united with God and each other, this creates a whole new, well, humanity in a way. A whole new people. This section of Romans chapters 5 to 8, this is where most of our lessons came from this summer. Where we talked about how when we are baptized, we are connected to what Christ did on the cross, dying and rising again. And so we are now new people in Christ. We get to live new. We get to leave behind that old way of life where we lived in a way that was less than what we were meant to be. We get to live with the hope that someday we're going to be with God in paradise. We're going to stand with him at resurrection and we're going to be everything God created us for. And we're going to experience that. And we get to begin to seek for that and live for that now. We get to begin to live as the new humanity. We get to live by the power of the Spirit. When you get to chapters 7 and 8, then also 9 through 11, we're not going to go into detail about what this all is here, but I wanted to show you these slides partly just to show you how important for Paul the issue is of how we think about the law now and how you think about the Old Testament laws now in the church where you have people who are Jewish and non-Jewish. He goes through chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, and 11. This is really a big deal for the early church. We had these laws. They were so important to us. Now we're in a church with Gentiles. How does this work? What do we do with this? How do we think about the law? Now how do we think about Israel? All this stuff is a really big deal for the church. And Paul goes through very thoroughly to help the people understand better how this works so that they can be a united church. For our lesson today, and with our context today, not being quite as heavy on the Jew-Gentile difficulty, we're not going to get into the details of this today, but it's important for us just to know that Paul is really passionate about this and really dives into these differences to help unite the church. Where we're going to get to more today is starting in chapter 12 then going into chapter 16. In the beginning of chapter 12, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. In the Old Testament, you had these sacrifices that you would, you would take and you would burn up the whole sacrifice and it would go to God. Paul uses this picture now. He says, your whole life is to be a sacrifice to God, fully dedicated to God. And in chapters 12 to 16, he talks about how that looks in the world then also how that unifies the church. And our lesson today comes towards the end of this section, not all the way to the end, but towards the end of this section, the section where Paul has really been working through how God relates to us so that we can also now be united with each other. It's here in this later section of Romans where we get to our lesson of judging us. Our lesson comes in a section where Paul is dealing specifically about 
how your background affects the way you think God wants you to live. In this section, he's not talking about the clear-cut laws of Scripture. Do this, don't do that. But more so the applications. Okay, because I believe in Jesus, now I believe God wants me to do this or do that. And in this section, Paul brings out that based on your background, based on your perspective of faith, you may believe God wants you to go a direction that is different than your Christian brother. In verses 2 to 4, he talks about how one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. In the Old Testament, there was different food rules, food laws, and so on. There was no law in the Old Testament that said you couldn't eat meat. However, if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel has this diet where he only eats vegetables. And perhaps people in the New Testament were trying to emulate Daniel. I don't know for sure. Maybe you've even heard people reference that today. Sometimes they will use that as a model for like healthy eating today and whatnot. I wouldn't fit well in that camp because I like meat too much. But in Paul's day, there were some who said, well, you can eat whatever. And some were like, no, the God-pleasing way is to eat this. And Paul's highlighting that you, based on your perspective and where your faith is, can have a different belief about what God wants you to do with this. And don't be quick to judge someone who is firmly believing that God wants them to do something different. Because ultimately, they are serving God, and it's ultimately between them and God, who are you to judge another person's heart and what another person is believing God is calling them to do. He also mentions about days being special and so on. He who eats meat eats the Lord, who gives thanks to God. He who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. There are various ways that people in Paul's day would show thanks to God, and some of them would be opposite of each other. Some would eat meat, some would not eat meat. Some would celebrate certain days, some would not celebrate certain days. And both could do it to the glory of God. Because ultimately, each of us will give an account to God. And that's really our first and foremost relationship that we think about. In the verses that get closer to our lesson, Paul says, as one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in and of itself. So again, this is a reminder. This is not one of those, he's not talking about people having different opinions on things that are clearly laid on scripture. He's saying, like, I'm convinced that you can eat whatever. But if somebody regards something as unclean, if from their perspective they're like, no, I don't, I, I don't think that's the most God-pleasing thing for me to do, then for him, it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Paul is really laying out for us that we ought to have this love for one another and an awareness that two Christians can be fully convinced of different paths and we need to show love to one another. It's in this section that we have this lesson about judging us. And this lesson really helps explore part of why it's so necessary, really at the core why it's so necessary for us to show love to each other. So our lesson says, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Now there's a couple of things in, in, in the original language that, that with the words that you could see in the original language that you don't really see in the English that, that can help bring out some of what's going on here. First of all, I want to talk about the word judge in the Greek language. You don't see it in the English translation, but it will be there in just a moment. The word judge means to separate or to distinguish. So if you're judging something, you're saying, okay, this thing here, this is good, this is godly, 
This thing here, this is bad, this is evil, this is sinful. Judging is to separate or distinguish. Now here's the interesting thing. The word doubts means to judge through. So in other words, there's this division inside of you. There's this separation inside of you. And because this is going on inside of you, while part of you might be, okay, this is okay, there's a part of you that is judging that this is wrong or sinful or bad. There is a judging happening inside of you where you are judging that this action, where you are distinguishing this action as not God-pleasing. Well then, Paul says, okay, so the man who has doubts is condemned. The word condemned means to judge against. So that's the idea of separating something out as not God-pleasing and then saying that's bad. So here's the math that Paul is doing. It's a pretty simple equation if you think about it. If there is an action that part of you, that your heart is judging as wrong, that you are judging against that action, and then you do that very action, what are you judging about yourself? That you're doing it wrong, that you're doing something sinful. If there is something that you have judged as sinful, and you do that thing, you are judging yourself as sinful. Whether the action in and of itself is sinful or not, if you believe it is, and you do it, it's sinful. It's kind of like, we to use a, a pretty, non, pretty simple uh, picture today. So we've got the baptism cake back there. And let's say before the service today, you asked me, you said, Pastor, um, can I have, can I have a piece, or actually after the service, because you can have cake after the service. Let's say after the service, you ask, you say, Pastor, can I, can I have a piece of cake? And after the service, I'll have my mask on. Sometimes we don't always hear clearly through a mask, right? And when I say, go ahead, maybe you may, thought I said, not yet, or something, right? So even though you could have the cake, when you hear not yet, if you thought I said not yet, but you go and you eat the cake, what have you just done? You've just gone against what you thought I said. Even though you could have the cake, if you believe that I said don't have the cake and you do it anyway, it is still a sinful and hurtful action. You are judging against yourself. It is a destructive thing if you go against what you believe God is calling you to do. And to take it a bit, a bit further, Paul, he goes on to say, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Remember, faith is, is that persuasion, that we are persuaded that Jesus is that perfect human who lived that perfect life, who died for us and rose again. Faith is the, fact, is, is, is the belief that we are now in Christ and get to live this new life. Faith is not... Now, this is what I believe I need to do to make myself right with God, but it is a belief that as someone who is right with God, I now get to live a new life. Paul says anything in your life, if it doesn't proceed from faith, from believing that this is what God is now allowing you, giving you the opportunity to do, if it doesn't come from faith, then it's sin. It's a pretty big statement, and it makes me wonder how many times during the day do we actually act in a way that is destructive to us, even though it is not necessarily clearly wrong? Where we maybe do things that we think in our hearts, we have a feeling that this isn't a good and right thing, but we do it anyway. 
And let me, let me give you an, maybe an example of how uh, um, this can play out. Sometimes, at the end of the day, I will, you know, you sit down and you want to sit down, like, in, uh, I like have my recliner in front of our wood fire stove and I like to sit there, right? And sometimes at the end of the day, I will want to sit down and kick my feet up, but part of me will have this feeling like I'm doing something wrong because I have more of a list to do. Or I'll remember, oh, I forgot to, you know, text Chris Meske about the social event coming up. Man, she's going to be angry. No, she doesn't get angry at me. I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, you start having this thing, like the God-pleasing thing is not for me to sit down and rest right now. And what I need to do in that moment, actually, is remind myself, no, God says, rest. <laughs> you don't have to do it all today. Take a break. But if I'm convinced that what I was about to do was not what God wanted me to do, and I do it anyway, I end up feeling shameful and guilty, even though the thing I was about to do was totally good. How many times during the day or in our lives do we do things that we believe actually are not right, not what God wants us to do, but we just do them anyway? Even though they're not, they might not be good or bad or whatever, it's just what we believe is wrong. When we do that, that's detrimental to our faith. It's hard sometimes to really have clear in our minds what God is calling us to do or not to do. It's not always as easy as this clear, this law, or that law. Sometimes it's actually simply just going against what we are believing right now that God wants us to do. That's complicated. But now, to make matters more complicated, this lesson isn't just about us. Actually, it's about how you relate with other people's hearts and what they're believing God is calling them to do. Paul, he goes on, he says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. i, I got to explain the strong, weak terminology here because typically when you hear that somebody is strong and the other person is weak, one of those things seems more positive than the other. Strong would seem more positive. Weak would seem more negative, right? That's not the idea. That's not what Paul is trying to express here. When you see the word strong, it, it's the word actually that dynamite comes from. It has the idea of being powerful or having the ability to do something. And then weak is not having the ability. You can be at a place in your faith where your faith gives you the ability to do something, where you can do it in good conscience, and there might be another time in your faith where your faith does not give you the ability to do something because it would go against your conscience. And it doesn't mean that your faith is in a bad place. It just means it's in a different place. I've got a couple of pictures here to help give some, some explanations or examples of this. This is a picture from the Christmas parade last Friday. Um, and uh, I was gifted very kindly from the Prebush family. Um, well, really from your dad, Michelle, right? A, a fantastic Santa suit that I wore while driving the RAV4 for the Christmas parade last week. <coughs> Excuse me. There was a time in my faith where I would have not had the ability to wear that suit in good conscience. And it's because there was a time in my faith where I believed that Santa took away from the meaning of Christmas. And maybe some of you agree. Maybe you're like, I can't believe Pastor wore the Santa suit. And you're in a different place in your faith than I am right now. At where I'm in my faith right now, I believe I thought it was a good thing. And so I wore it. 
when I would have believed that I shouldn't, doesn't mean that my faith was bad. It just meant at that point in my life, I had a different perspective on what God wanted me to do. My perspective has changed. I now have the ability to wear a Santa suit and drive a, in a parade. I wouldn't have a few years ago. Trunk or treat's the same sort of thing. Our trunk or treat, which is our biggest outreach event of the year, connected with Halloween, right? There was a time in my faith where we didn't really touch Halloween because, you know, Halloween sometimes has some, you know, there's some things about Halloween that are not great. And there was a point in my faith where I, was, I didn't believe that doing something Halloween-related was, was good. My perspective has changed. It doesn't mean my faith is better, but I now have the ability to do it, and I wouldn't have a while ago. Now, having the ability is not the only consideration. You also need to think about the people around you, and 1 Corinthians 8 dives into that more. And I, before I put on the Santa suit last week, I did think, what message am I going to send to the people who are there? And I thought it through, and I was like, okay, I think we'll be fine. I think we'll be good. You want to consider the message you're sending to the people around you. If, you, if this 1 Corinthians 8 gets into that, it's a, a similar but different um, uh, section of Scripture. If you want more details with that section, I encourage you to watch Pastor Krause's sermon from Fort Atkinson later this week because he is planning to dig into the differences and similarities between these two lessons. Um, but for our purpose and just the way I'm going about sharing the message, we're not going to get into it too much. But if you want more details, when that sermon comes out this week, watch that message. So we had, can be in a different place with our faith where it's not better or worse, but where we have different abilities of what our faith is allowing us to do. Sometimes this is in pretty non-intense situations like Christmas, parade, and trunk or treat. But other times it can be in more intense ones. Either way, God is calling us to bear with the failings. And that, again, can sound kind of negative. What it's talking about, it actually literally means to carry those who are weak in this area, who are lacking this strength in this area to do this thing. Instead of forcing someone or really in pushing someone to do something that goes against their conscience, we are to carry each other when we have a difference of where we are in our faith. We are to support each other, to love each other, to not insist on our own way, on where I am and with my faith. I don't have to expect you to be where I am right now. We can be in different places and carry one another. I mean, after all, and in verse 3 that comes after our sermon lesson today, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Our faith starts with Jesus, who came to literally carry all of our weaknesses on himself. When we see that we are in a different place of faith than another Christian, God would call us to carry one another, to carry each other's burdens, to not cause an insult or an injury where maybe someone, remember, if you go against your conscience, it's detrimental to your faith. God would call us not to cause injury to one another, but to lift up each other. In the settings, again, like Trunk or Treat and the Christmas Journey, there's fairly non-intense settings. But I'm going to tell you, this concept of lifting up each other when we are at different places and what our faith allows us to do in other situations 
is really hard. And I speak from personal experience over especially since March of 2020. What happened March of 2020? COVID came on the scene. I mean, I know it was around before then, whatever, but that's when everything started, like, shutting down, right? And since then, I have had so many conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ who are fully convinced and believe that the course that is godly for them is the right one, and it is not necessarily the same one that I believe that is godly for me. And that's a hard conversation. And my guess is you've had these conversations too with people. And it's been especially prevalent over the last, since like March 2020, because, you know, we're in a pandemic, and in the pandemic, there's actually a very central command. We don't typically talk about it this way, but there's a central commandment to what we've been trying to do the last, how long has it been? A year and three, too long, right? Long time. And the commandment is this one, you shall not murder. You might go, well, wait a minute, this isn't about murder. Well, Luther's Catechism, which we use in our confirmation class, has nice little tidy, what does this mean, sections to it. And by the way, if you've lost your catechism and ever want one, remind me or come to me, I'll get you one. What does this mean? It means we should fear and love God so that we do no bodily harm to our neighbor, but help and befriend him in every need. It's not just don't murder somebody, but it's also help and befriend and help your neighbor thrive and be healthy. And in this last, since March 2020, we've been really trying to, as a world, figure out how to keep people healthy, right? And as we've gone through it, there have been very strong convictions that, well, we need to take this measure to keep people healthy. And then as it goes, well, you know, but what about mental health and things like that? And then we need to do this measure, we need to do that. And then as things go, things like, um, vaccines and stuff come out. Well, maybe we should do this. Or no, maybe we shouldn't do that. And there have been strong, strong, strong conversations where Christians who are both trying to glorify God and honor the fifth commandment firmly believe that the course of action that they, are sh that they should take is the exact opposite of each other. I've had it, where I've sat and I, I've heard someone share with me boldly and confidently what they think that we should do, and when I got done listening to them, I wasn't convinced, that I was still firmly convinced of what I was thinking, but I realized that they were at a part point in their faith where they believed that that was the God-pleasing way, and I was at a point in my faith where I believed something different was the God-pleasing way. And that is a hard spot to be in, where we are believing that the most God-pleasing way is different than people around us than our brothers and sisters or our fellow members of the Abiding Shepherd. Especially because we live in this world where, man, we are so quick to just yell off, like yell out our comments. Like, maybe not literally, but social media. Like, I, I'm so annoyed with people who when they post and they say, I'm just going to leave this right here, like a mic drop. Like, come on, drop the sass, would you? Let's have a conversation. But we're in a world where people just want to toss out opinions and arguments and condemn the other person right away without hearing out what they've said. And I think this time period of isolation has made it worse. 
You know, where we haven't been seeing each other and having conversations and wrestling with stuff. Like one of the things I love about when we're at church together or when we're at small groups and we can, can share things and, and maybe we can disagree. That's good for us. Or maybe like I've, I've had people sometimes share with me, at, you know, pastor, what about, I don't, you know, I don't really get this part of your sermon. It's, feedback is good. And we haven't had it. And that's hard. And actually, I think it amplifies this problem. And so if you're like me, in this last 20 months or so, I have seen ways where I have done a terrible job of judging us. Where sometimes I have been quick to judge other people, not kind in my words or various ways. And my guess is, you have too. Because we're sinful people and it's what we do. But that's why it's so beautiful that the starting point of this letter and where this letter goes right after our sermon lesson is to Jesus, who did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. We all get to take together or come together and confess together that, yeah, we have not done a good job of judging us. And we can together lay those sins at the cross and know that we are right with God simply through faith in Jesus. And it doesn't matter what our perspectives have been or where we're at with this thing or that thing or even where we're still wrestling. We are all right with God the same way. Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And if we're right with God the same way, and united with God that way, we can love and be humble and live united with each other. We can live in a way where we're doing what Paul says in the beginning of chapter 14, where we are accepting those whose faith is weak. You know, someone whose faith doesn't allow them to do what, where I'm at right now. We can accept each other. We don't have to pass judgment on disputable matters. We should get together and talk about things sometimes, Actually, I really hope we do. We, we, we need to talk about things, but in a way that Scripture prescribes, not the way the world likes to do it. We should do things like James 1.19 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We need to get together, and we need to hear where people are at and what they're thinking. Because there may be times where we also need to speak the truth in love, like Ephesians says. Throughout all of this, our consciences have been in different places. Sometimes, maybe throughout this, maybe there's been times where we've had a callous conscience, where we have not been doing the God-pleasing thing, but simply the thing that we want to do. I don't like doing this, so I'm not going to. Well, that's not very God-pleasing. Or, I think this, so we should, you should do this. And if we've had a callous conscience, we need to be together with brothers and sisters in Christ who can call us out lovingly. We need to be together with each other because sometimes we can have a misinformed conscience. That's kind of, that was where, when I talked about like at the, in the evening and that idea that maybe I shouldn't sit down and rest, that's a misinformed conscience. I needed to be reminded, I needed the information that God wanted me to rest. We need to be together because sometimes we can believe God wants us to do something and that's not actually what he wants us to do. We need to be around each other. We need to communicate with each other so we can be informed. But we also need to be together to realize that sometimes our brothers and sisters will have a crisis of conscience. That's what this lesson is. Where they may firmly believe 
that the God-pleasing way is the exact opposite of what I believe the God-pleasing way is. And in that case, in that situation, do you know what they need? Patience and understanding and love from their brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we, we get to go about interacting with each other this way, where we go about interacting with each other as people who are united by the fact that we have a God who has carried our burdens to the cross and risen again to give us new life. We get to come together and act as people who are living as a new humanity, a new group of people who, whatever your background is or whatever, it doesn't matter. And where you may have a different perspective on things, those things, you know, those things are important, but you know what really unites us? It's not that we always have the same perspective on the details of life, but we have a Savior who unites us with God and each other. And I, the more I've studied this and the more I've worked, wrestled with this the last year and a half or so, the more I've realized that there is a beauty to the fact that God allows us to be in different places at different times in our faith because it forces us to not base our confidence in our relationship with him on how good we follow the law or how good we got things figured out. And it forces us not to base our relationship with each other on those, those things either. It forces us to base our unity with God and each other on Christ. He is the one who sets us right. He is the one who gives us hope for eternity that someday when he returns, we will stand right with him before God. And he is the basis for unity and love in the church now. He is the one who takes care of judging us.